So welcome to Plodcast, episode 31. Great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what I wanted to talk about in this opening segment is uh, is Sabbath keeping. Um, and and I, I want to... Uh, Make a few initial observations about Sabbath keeping, and then, and then back out and look at the look at the big picture. Um, when I first came to Sabbatarian uh, convictions, uh, when I came to recognize that the fourth commandment had continuing validity, I'm 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 sure that the fourth commandment was grateful for my ultimate recognition. <laughs> Golly, uh, so. One of the reasons I was hesitant uh, to embrace the full authority of the Fourth Commandment in the modern world is that there there has been a certain kind of Sabbath breaking that glories in being Sabbath keeping. So um, what do I mean? Well, when Jesus was uh, when Jesus got into his controversies more often than not or frequently, the controversies he got into were Sabbath controversies, where he was accused of breaking the Sabbath. The Lord was accused of breaking the Sabbath because he healed people on the Sabbath. His disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath because they took a handful of uh, grain as they walked along a field. Um, He was accused of Sabbath breaking, but I believe that what Scripture is setting before us here is the example of... uh, hyper-scrupulous Sabbath keepers being actually the ones who are breaking the Sabbath. In other words, uh, hyper-scrupulosity when it comes to Sabbath keeping is a form of Sabbath breaking. Jesus Jesus said that, um, that man was not made so that the Sabbath would have someone to keep the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus said that that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so if you tie yourself up in knots over Sabbath keeping, one of the first things that it, you're doing is you're, you're, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're not, you're not keeping the Sabbath the way God would have you keep the Sabbath. Uh, so when, back to the beginning of my story, when, I'm, when I was first coming into, when I was first coming into an, a conviction that, that we ought to be uh, keeping the Sabbath, my kids were still at home. The kids were still young and I finally um, came to the conviction that yes this is something we ought to do and uh, there's a temptation when you get to that point the temptation is this the temptation is to to say okay I'm now a Sabbatarian I'm now someone who wants to keep the Sabbath and the first thing your mind turns to is what can't I do what are the things that I must not do if I'm to be a consistent Sabbatarian. And I think we ought to begin at the other end. We ought to begin with what we get to do, not with what we got to do. Now, of course, at some point, um, Sabbath keeping is going to exclude certain things, but we shouldn't rush to the exclusions uh, right away. So, uh, for example, when the disciples were accused by uh, the Lord's enemies of Sabbath breaking because they took, they, they gathered a little grain as they walked and ate it, uh, what was the basis for the accusation? Well, obviously, if you take, uh, if you remove a kernel of grain from a stalk, that, that 
is a harvesting. Even if you're taking one or two or three grains, that's a minuscule harvest, but you're harvesting. And everybody knows you, you don't get to harvest on the, um, on the Sabbath. So um, th there are ancient versions of this and modern versions of this. And, and this is what I mean by hyperscrupulosity. Uh, the ancient rabbis said you could, on the Sabbath, you could pick up a chair and uh, carry it across the room on the Sabbath. Uh, that, that was okay. But you were not allowed to drag a chair um, because if you, if you um, took a chair and dragged it, then it might break the surface. And if, you, if it broke the surface, the, the, that would be plowing. So you can't, that would be plowing, and plowing is prohibited on the Sabbath. Um, in, uh, if, you're, if you were to go to Brooklyn uh, today, which has got a heavy uh, Orthodox Jewish population, and you were to try to ride, a, ride an elevator on the Sabbath, uh, you would find that on the Sabbath, the elevators stop at every floor automatically. They're programmed to stop at every floor and open the door and then resume. And that's because if you got into an elevator and pushed the button, you would be igniting a fire. And because you'd be causing a spark to come into existence, and the um, uh, the Old Testament prohibits igniting a fire or or starting a fire on the Sabbath, and so elevators have to stop at every floor. That's what I mean by uh, scrupulosity. Now, when Jesus collides with these people, it's not like he's being this radical anti-Sabbatarian hippie. It's that he understands what the Sabbath is for. So, um, so for example, what does the Sabbath require? Uh, and how do you measure work? How, how is work evaluated within the terms of the um, uh, Fourth Commandment? Well, I don't think we should define work um, according to a physics textbook. In other words, work is not defined as an as expenditure of energy so if you were to go out in the side yard on the lord's day and and uh, play a game of catch frisbee frisbee catch with your kid you might expend more energy throwing the throwing and catching the frisbee than you do in the same period of time at your uh at your office right but you don't define work on the lord's day as by in terms of how much energy you expend you define it within the commandment six days you shall labor and do all your work uh, you define you define the work that you're not to do on the lord's day in terms of the work that you do do uh, in the course of the week to make your living so for example so when uh, when our family became sabbatarian i cautioned the kids that i didn't want them thinking about what they can't do. Don't go, don't rush there. Don't go there in the first instance. I want you to think about what I'm asking, what I'm requiring you to do. And the one thing I'm telling you that you can't do is your schoolwork. So you are students, you are living in my home, you are getting your education. Your week is defined by your schoolwork. So the one Sabbath requirement I had in the household uh, was no schoolwork. So you, we are now Sabbat, we are now Sabbatarians. No math on Sunday. We're now Sabbatarians. No, um, uh, no writing your paper on, on the Lord's Day. Uh, 
And so that's, of course, a thing you don't do. But it's the, the thing you don't do is the thing that you are doing all week and that you need respite from. You need, you need, to, um, you need to take it easy. So if you, if you say, um, you know, am I allowed to turn the lights on? Because it's the Lord's Day and somebody is down at the power plant working a 12-hour shift on the Lord's Day and, and, and if he were not doing that, then I, then I couldn't uh, flip the light switch. I think you're starting at the wrong end. So one other, one other comment that uh, I wanted to make about, about this, and that is if, if you uh, had a town where the churches were growing in grace and, and the town were evangelized and people came into genuine take it easy, take, take a rest, Sabbatarianism, that would transform the economy of that town. And it would also, I think, establish a zone of liberty where um, governmental demands and market demands um, are silenced by the fact that God's people are resting. So, um, and, and it's the sort of thing, and some people will say, well, this is a modern industrial society. This sort of thing is not, um, it's not possible. It's not feasible. It's not likely. I remember talking, my, my dad was um, born in 1927 and grew up in, grew up in Nebraska. And when, um, when he was a child, Sabbatarian, uh, there was a Sabbatarian culture in America. In fact, when I was a child, there was far more of one than, than there is now. But um, uh, if, I were, if I were king for a day, you know, or, or the mayor of a, of a city and the people had become Christians and they said, what, what should we do um, on, the, on the Lord's Day? What should we do? Uh, I would say that one grocery store, on every Lord's Day, one grocery store should stay open, one pharmacy should stay open, one sit-down restaurant should stay open, and one fast food restaurant should stay open. And um, that's so that the strangers in your midst, the people from out of town, the people driving through, uh, they have something, that, you know, they, they, they can uh, uh, get some, you can get something in case of an emergency or, or uh, works of necessity, you know, meals, are, uh, meals are lawful. Um, and, and yet, if you drove into the same town, the rhythm of life would be completely different on the Lord's Day than it, than it would be um, uh, the other days of the week. So then, podcast episode thirty-one. Uh, what's the, what's our book this time? Uh, I just recently finished this. Finished this a few days ago. Uh, I'd like to commend uh, to you a book called *The Man of the House* by uh, Wiley. W i l e y. W i l e y. *The Man of the House*. So this is a book on marriage, and it's a book on marriage and family, but it's, um, it's not. Uh, a how-to relationship book. It's not how to talk to your wife. Um, it's not how to um, organize a romantic getaway. It's more a book on how to be a vertebrate husband, how to be the kind of man who takes responsibility, how to be the kind of man who knows how to think about finances, how to be the kind of man who knows how to think about property, um, and income-producing property, how to be the kind of man who can 
fix things, how to be the kind of man who um, knows what to do, knows how to take responsibility. Uh, so this is a, a, a book about relationships. It's about marriage and family, but it's not so much um, uh, a book that dissects or takes apart uh, a conversation between husband and wife or the dynamic between husband and wife, although there are elements of that in this. It's, it's more like a, uh, imagine um, a young man who's, been, who's grown up in uh, this generation who hasn't really had anybody explain to him or model for him what men are for. No one's ever shown him what men are for. Uh, let's say he's got an absentee dad or, or a, um, uh, his dad is out of the picture. And, and shortly before he gets married, he has a, you know, kind of a Dutch uncle from out of town uh, shows up and, and decides to take him under his wing and, and explain certain things to him. Um, this is what it takes to be a man. This is, th- these are the prerequisites for a husband. In order to be a husband, you've, you've got to be, you've got to have a backbone. You've got to be a vertebrate. You've got to know how to do things. You have to know how to think about things. You know how to, you have to know how to take um, responsibility. Uh, so this is, um, this is a marriage book or it's a prereq, prerequisites for marriage book. Um, it's the kind of thing that if someone's already married, he can read through and, and be reminded. Uh, he can learn some things. He might get a few kicks in the ankle where he, oh, I, I need to I need to take responsibility for that. I need to do these things. Um, but be advised. Uh, Wiley is kind of a curmudgeon. He's kind of old school. He is not afraid of saying things that are politically uh, incorrect. He just, and he just says them. Um, and there's and consequently, there's a lot of good horse sense here. A lot of good horse sense here. So, um, The Man of the House by Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. So, what is our sin? Uh, we, we are studying, con- continuing our series on hamartiology. What uh, sin are we going to talk about today? Well, James tells us that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's James 1.8. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The word for unstable here is akatastatos. And uh, in this context, it refers to a man who cannot thank God for his trials. So James has told us, um, uh, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Uh, when you see a trial coming down the road, down the road um, after you, you should roll up your uh, shirt sleeves. You should spit on your hands and thank the Lord for it. And um, and a man who can't do that, James describes as uh, a double-minded man who just waffles back and forth. And because of that, he's unstable. All right, so this unstable man is going to be bright and, bright and sunny when it's bright and sunny out, and he's going to be tumultuous and stormy when it's stormy out. A, f- a few verses before this, James has fa- famously stated that if a man lacks wisdom, he should ask God for it. But this verse, uh, if, anyone, if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God. This verse is not, as so many assume, asking wisdom in taking this or that course of action. The Bible in this passage in James, it's not talking about 
praying to God when you don't know whether to buy the buy the Ford or the Toyota, or uh, praying intensely for wisdom when you're you're deciding between the Ford and the Chevy. Um, it's not talking about wisdom about a practical choice like uh, a Ford or Chevy. Now I'm not saying it's bad bad to ask for wisdom when you don't know what to do, but this verse is talking about uh, the person who lacks wisdom with regard to counting it all joy in a trial. So um, James has told us when, you, when you're confronted with a trial, you should count it all joy. If anybody lacks wisdom, here's the context, if anybody lacks wisdom, parenthesis, about how to do that, about how to ask God for joy when you're confronted with trials, then you should make a point of asking God for that wisdom. So the place where we need wisdom is in the counting it all joy when trials come over us. We need to ask for wisdom in that circumstance, and we need to do it without wavering. We don't like tough things happening to us because we don't like the process of being made tough. We don't like tough things happening because we, uh, we don't like the the way it feels when we're being made tough. Now, uh, in Hebrews 12, it says that um, we should uh, basically, uh, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But then he says, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of an upright life. So the blessing of the toughening process is a delayed gratification blessing. It's a blessing that comes later. So when a trial is coming, we need to thank God for it. We need to, um, says in Ephesians, always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of God. So we need to thank God for the trials. We need to see that trial on the road ahead, on the road down from us, headed our way. And when we see that trial coming our way, we need to thank God for it, and we need to thank God for it without wavering. Uh, if we don't do that, then we're double-minded. And if we're double-minded, then we're unstable in the midst of our trial, which is the last place where we should be unstable. So let me go over that again. If we're double-minded, if we're double-minded, then we are unstable in the midst of trial. If we're unstable in the midst of trial, that's the last place we should be unstable. If we're unstable in the midst of, in the midst of trial, then that's just another way of saying that we're unstable, period. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.